Now we're good. There it is. Ha, ha, ha. Oh, technology. Oh, goodness. So I'm not sure if it's a cardinal sin to mess with the pastor's Bible in the pulpit, but we're going to go with that anyways, <laughs> since there's only limited space up here. Um, it is good to be here with you again. Yes, let's do that. Thank you very much. I meant to do that earlier. Awesome. So it is good to be here with you again. And uh, as Jeremy said, I am a chaplain in the U.S. Army. If I've not met you before, we have attended here regularly um, in the past. And it is good to have the privilege of being able to come and to speak to you from God's Word, um, to present what He has to say. Uh, so we will go into that here shortly as soon as I get all my ducks in a row. So, all right. Um, before I go into this, uh, I like to tell chapel congregations when I get started with them, any text without a context is a pretext. I said that with you before. I'm going to continue to repeat it. Please always continue to keep that in mind as a good principle for life. Um, and the point being that the context of this passage is that Jesus has come and he is resurrected from the dead. The disciples have seen him. They've met him. He's appeared over the course of about 40 days, roughish. And has been appearing before lots of the believers, the people who had followed him over the course of that time, those 40 days. So to the extent of about 500 people at one point. So it's out there that Jesus is up from the dead and it's out there. The news is gone, gone out. So he has met with his disciples though and he's given them some instructions. And as he's finished his instructions, he's ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of his father. But his instructions to them was they were to wait in Jerusalem until uh, the Holy Spirit was to come upon them. And so what we're going to do then when we come into this text, we have them waiting. We see Pentecost. Uh, I will admit that there is absolutely no rhyme or reason to my having chosen this passage to preach from other than the fact that this is one of the few sermons I have as full, more fully developed. Okay? <laughs> so there you go. It was more fully written out already beforehand. I had a really busy week. All right? So, but it's a good text, um, and it is still God's work uh, in history for us and for you and me. So, without any further ado, let's go ahead and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you knowing that above all other things, it is you who we need to meet, and it is you who we need to hear from. And it is you that we need to speak into our hearts to remind us of what you have done, what you are going to do, and the joy that is complete within that, um, for how you and you alone are the sole focus of our hearts, and how you need to be the full focus of our hearts, and how often we stray from that. So I pray, Lord, that as we come to your word, you would speak your grace to us, that in our stumbling and our bumbling around, and in the day-to-day -day and all the things that we do, we would still know that you have met with us and that you are pleased with your children, and that you are still continuing to call out your children from the whole of this world to yourself, and you're gathering your family to yourself. So I pray, Lord, that you would encourage our hearts, that my words would not be mine, but that they would be yours, and that our ears would be open to hear, Lord, open to hear what your Spirit is saying through your word about your Son. And to name your Son, Jesus, I pray it. Amen. So, kind of just preached my sermon there in the prayer. So there you go. Um, <laughs> it just happens that way sometimes. The, I once met a man, and you meet, these, you meet people that are like this all over the place from time to time, 
who was an ardent conspiracy, conspiracy theorist. He was very firmly convinced that the moon landing in the 1960s was a hoax. Okay. And the basis of his argument was he'd walk over to his truck, he'd open up the hood, it was a 1960s pickup, he'd point at that hood and say, do you mean to tell me the same people who developed this kind of technology in the 1960s had the capacity to put a man on the moon? I don't believe it. You know, I don't believe it. You know? So he, he, he was ardent, just completely ardent about the fact that the moon landing had never happened. Maybe it happened since then, but it has not happened then. Okay, not as it was shown on TV, despite everybody seeing it happen on TV. It never ceases to amaze me how adept sometimes we can be at making excuses for things that are exceedingly evident right in front of our face. We are really, really good at it. In fact, I think the field of psychology exists simply because that's a truth. Okay. It really does. Well, one of the things I like about psychology, actually. In this text, okay, you can miss it if you go through. In this text, there is uh, there's a category of people called the mockers who very much fit this bill, okay? Uh, but let me go ahead first and read the text uh, because I forgot to do so. Let me go ahead and read the text. And I want you to hear it, and I want you to pay attention to that and see that as we go through. Um, so I want you to hear and receive this because this is God speaking to us, speaking to us from, through the Holy Spirit. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But then others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We are adept at making excuses for what we see in front of us. 
But that's not just true of the mockers. Sometimes it's also very true of ourselves. And I think in this, in this context as well, it's good for us to remember that before the Spirit comes, to remember and look and see where are the disciples in this circumstance. Where are they at? They have seen Jesus resurrected from the dead, and they've watched him ascend into the sky. They've had angels tell them that he's going to come back again just as they've seen him leave, right? But as part of that conversation, there's something interesting that takes place. After they've seen Jesus, and they're on the mountain, they're obviously getting their final words from him. They look at him and they ask him, you know, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? Will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? They're looking, they are still looking for Jesus to establish Israel as the reigning geopolitical superpower. That was their expectation. That's what they're looking for. And so they're always constantly trying to look at everything that Jesus has done through that lens. So in many respects, they're not very different from the mockers. They have an expectation that they want to see happen, and what they're seeing isn't fitting with it, but they're trying to make it get in there. Take this square peg and rub it into a, a, a round hole, right? The mockers, they have their expectations, their idea of what the world looks like, and so they have to somehow engineer the evidence before them to fit what they already think, because the world has to wrap itself around how they understand things, not around what God is doing. They're locked into a perspective that they can't, that they can't escape. But what is happening now then in this passage is that God is coming in. He's doing something that nobody foresaw, that nobody was really expecting, and that, quite frankly, none of us had the capacity to do on our own. We don't have the ability to do what the Spirit is doing here. Because what the Spirit is doing here is he's taking the foundational work that Christ has done, and he is now beginning to build. He's building a home. He is coming down to be God with us. Christ came and incarnated and became God with us when he was born and when he walked on the face of this earth. But in his, in his incarnation, he could not be with each of us individually in that incarnation because there's a limitation to the incarnation, to the physicality of who he is. And his promise is that God is with us. His promise, as we see even from Joel, as Peter quotes it, is that we're all going to be changed, that we're going to have hearts that are in sync with God's perspective, with what God is going to do. And so what we see in this passage is that the Holy Spirit has come and is moving and is changing hearts. That what he is building is he's building a family as his home. He's building people as the people he's going to live with. And so it's because of Christ's death, his resurrection, and his ascension, the Spirit is able to come so that we might believe, we might have his perspective. And in doing so then, able to then walk out and live faithfully in these last days. Because that's what we do live in. We live within the last days. We live within the days between his first coming and his ascension and his next coming. There is no other set of last days. That is it. We live within those days. And so the Spirit is now moving. And now and in these days is the opportunity for the Spirit to come and to move our hearts 
and to take the hearts of those who don't know and to turn them from mockers into believers. And in so doing, the Spirit then takes you and I, those of us who do believe, and he uses us as the tools in that process. Isn't that amazing? Like, what a privilege. God is going to do something. He's actually going to make me part of that process. Like, what? Really? But he takes us able. He comes in, and he makes us able to follow him, makes us able to proclaim him faithfully, be able to fellowship with each other humbly, and to live in dependence upon him. So let's talk about that faithful proclamation. There's a strong emphasis in this passage on fulfillment and timing. If you look at verse 1, it says that they were uh, all gathered together, right? It says, they were, it says when the time had arrived, that's what it says, when the Pentecost, the day of Pentecost had arrived, right? Well, that word that's used or translated into arrived actually means fulfilled. It means it's complete. And it carries a sense of something that's in the process of preparation that's now done and ready to be served, okay? In fact, when, when, you read, when Peter quotes, uh, quotes Joel, it says that the Holy Spirit will be poured into his people, like serving a meal into a bowl. So, this is why Peter uses that passage. And in verse 8, 17 to 18, it clearly describes what is happening right there in front of their faces, even though it was said 400 years before. So there's that in the sense of timing being fulfilled, and there's that in the sense of um, things coming to a fruition, okay? And even there in that term, fruition, we betray another way in which this, is, this has been forecasted and seen, and the Spirit is working, is using it, because the period of Pentecost um, is not a Christian church invention. Okay? It's not something that, we, that was celebrated that begun with us in the Christian church. It actually was celebrated by the people of history because what it was beforehand was it was a festival of the first fruits of the harvest. Now, there were a whole set, there's a whole set of different festivals that they had that centered around the harvest. And they kind of began with the Passover, which was 40 days earlier, which is right there around Christ and his, and his, uh, and his crucifixion and then his resurrection. And then later on comes the first harvest that you would have. And then at the first harvest, everybody was supposed to take the first and the best of what came in. They're supposed to take it to the temple and give it as a sacrifice and an offering to God. It was part of how the Levites got their, their what's the word I'm looking for? Their cut, okay, their cut of, of the blessings of the land that God was giving to them. Okay? So what we see happening then in this passage is that the Holy Spirit is taking Pentecost, he's turning it into something new. Now the harvest is not a harvest of the land, now the harvest is a harvest of souls. And this, is, and this is not new news, this is not new to them. Jesus pulls this, par- pulls this up and uses this imagery throughout many of his parables. Every time he talks about the gathering of the wheat or of the harvest take- coming place, or he talks to the disciples about, see, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. This is what he's talking about. This is the imagery that he's using. So what does this mean for you and I then? This is the case. God is taking this imagery, and this is the time, and this is the fulfillment. And this is God coming in, and, and he is proclaiming, and these disciples are now bursting out, and they're saying, hey, look what God has done. Right? And the Spirit is now moving and calling these people into himself. Right? What does this mean for you and me? Well, it means that God's Spirit is still with us. 
He's still collecting people. These disciples, look at where they were. They were in an upper room, praying and waiting and being faithful. But what was it that drove them out into the streets? What was it that made them go out and start proclaiming the wonders of God? It was the Spirit moving within them, connecting them and making them realize that what's taking place is something much more grand and glorious than a geopolitical ascendancy. It's much bigger than that. It's God reigning within their own hearts that they no longer need to fear judgment of their sin. That they could go out and they could proclaim the glories of God and they could say, oh my gosh, look at what he has done. They could recount the entire history of Israel, saying, look at what he's done, and then capstone it with all the things that they know that Jesus has done and talk about that, and that's what Peter does later. He confronts them with that. It's joy in the work of God and what he has done that brings them out, that enables them to proclaim him. That's why we come in here and we worship every Sunday. Proclamation. Worship is a proclamation of God and God's work. I, in my previous life, as an enlisted soldier in the Air Force, I met a young believer at one point. Uh, I was in the workspace where I was working at, uh, and he was a great guy. I love him. I was kind of going through a little bit of a crisis of faith at the same time. Uh, and please forgive me if I've used any of these illustrations before, Okay. Uh, but he was a new believer, okay? and he was so excited. I like to think of him as a bouncy believer. He was very much bouncy, because when you, saw, when you walk, saw him, and he's walking along, he just had a pep in his step. And he was ready. He's just, he just so excited. He's so glad. He'd come up to me every once in a while. I was like, isn't it so cool what Jesus did? I mean, isn't that cool? He'd become, be like really excited about the fact that Jesus died for my sin. This is awesome. I'm forgiven. Oh, my gosh. Isn't it great? And sometimes he'd look at me like, What's wrong with you? <laughs> you know, where's, what, what happened to you? You know, he actually asked me that question once. Um, a very pivotal moment for me, actually, when he did. But he was really excited. Okay? But what was interesting about the entire scenario was that as we go through the days and the weeks, we're all working together, I'd be also working with the same other people that he's working with, and I'd have them come, we'd be in conversation, and he, every once in a while, they'd lay comments out like, I'm, I'm glad he's happy, but is he? have to be that happy? <laughs> like, it's a little, can't he just tone the joy down a little bit? I mean, come on, seriously. You know. His joy was so exuberant, and he wasn't trying to be obnoxious. He really wasn't. He wasn't like being in people's faces and beating them over the head with his Bible. He was just that happy. He was that glad. He was that joyful over what God had done for him that it made all the unbelievers around him just a little bit uncomfortable. It made them a little uncomfortable. When's the last time you connected with your joy? When's the last time you connected with that? See, one of the reasons why the mockers make excuses and why so many people make excuses because we don't want to look at the shame we know resides with our sin. We don't want to feel the guilt that we know resides with our sin. But I want to encourage you and want to 
I want to implore you, implore you earnestly, do not run from your shame or your guilt. Because there is no shame or guilt that any of us could ever have for anything we've ever done that Christ did not carry upon the cross himself and leave in a grave. You want to connect to joy? Go to the shame and the guilt. Feel it and know it and then remember that it isn't yours. That's where the joy comes from. And that's what causes us to proclaim. So I'm not talking about going and getting your soapbox and finding a street corner and standing on it and yelling at people and trying to hit them over the head with the Bible. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about connecting with the joy that God has given us and what he has done for us. So we proclaim him faithfully out of the joy of what he's given us. But we also do it not by ourselves. We do it in community. We do it with each other. All right? We fellowship humbly with each other. If you look at verses 7 through 11, it, it's really kind of almost astounding in some ways when you read through the passage. Now, I remember this when I was first reading it and studying for this. You start going through the list of all the different places that people are from. And I kind of had to ask myself the question is like, Okay, Luke, you know, that's kind of extensive. Don't you think you could, like, pare that down a little bit? Get a little bit wordy here. Get a little bit wordy here, right? But then I started looking at it, and when you start looking at the cities that he's mentioning, he literally makes a circuit around the entirety of the Mediterranean. And then he picks another place that's about as far east as you could get on the known map in his day. Another one's about as far south. Another one's about as far north as you could get. And then one in the mountains... One on the coast, oh, and just for just make sure that we've covered all the bases, we got the island out in the middle of the Mediterranean and the capital Rome. Covered all the bases. Okay. Why? Because he wants us to understand. Okay. And here's the thing to pay attention to. Okay. That God is reaching all the corners of the globe. And he's bringing everybody to himself. Because what he is describing in this particular scenario is he's describing how devout Jews, people who already have a commitment to God, have come from all these four corners into Jerusalem, like the good Jews that they are, to celebrate the Pentecost and to give their first fruits to God. So you have to think about it. I mean, if you're coming from like the far reaches of Spain somewhere and you're traveling on barely cobbled roads, or maybe on a sea voyage, and you're probably looking at something like a two-week journey just to get to Jerusalem to bring in your first fruits, that's a, certain, that's a kind of a heavy level of commitment, right? So you, you, you really believe this and you want this. And so that's the category of people that we have coming in to Jerusalem. That's who God is drawing into this place so that in this moment, the Spirit has a ready field to harvest and then scatter back out. But that's not it. That's not the, that's not the whole extent of it either. Okay? Not only is he reaching all of these ethnicities all over the place, but then when you look at the passage in Joel, which Peter quotes, he covers even more categories of humanity. He covers servants. 
He covers young. He covers old. He covers all the socioeconomic strata that you could be looking for. Our God is collecting to himself a body of believers, a family to worship himself because he needs that myriad, multifaceted, expansive set of different perspectives and different personalities and different voices in order to properly reflect the full breadth of who he is and how glorious he is. He wants a full-throated choir singing in all the languages and all the many different ways. He wants them all with him, indwelt by him, worshiping him and glorifying him. There's a couple of examples here, and I'm going to try this one. I can remember at one point, as, uh, as my wife and I were still pursuing the chaplaincy, right, and I was looking to gain some experience in, in pastoral work, we were looking at a couple of different places, and one of the places we looked at was a, a very small church in the Chicago area, South Chicago, that wanted a pastor to come in and kind of breathe some new life into their congregation and into their church. So we went up there, and we visited with the elders there. I had a good visit with them. Things seemed to be nice. We liked what I heard and saw. Uh, the elders were, were wonderful, godly men uh, and looked great. And they had this lovely building, very old building uh, that they were worshiping in. And then we worshiped with them the next Sunday. And I had a kind of an aha moment when we then did the worship because the congregation, probably if I'm really being generous was maybe 20 people, maybe 20 people. Uh, and about half of that was both my family and the contracted pianist who was playing the piano leading the worship, so who actually attended at a different service um, elsewhere, another time of the day, right? So, and, and to boot, the majority of the congregation was over the age of 72. Okay. Now, please understand something. That's not to knock on anybody over the age of 72. Okay? That's, that's not the point. Okay? The point was that, though, it became extraordinarily evident that this was a congregation that was not interested in being a part of the team and reaching the neighborhood around them. It became really evident that that was the case, that this was not just a revival of the church body. This was a church plant. This was needing to go out find new people, create new believers by the power of the Holy Spirit, okay? <laughs> Evangelize new people, see the Spirit work, bring them in, and make them into a new congregation. But that there's going to be no real integration between those folks and what was already in place. That there was not a real receptivity in that congregation. And I hate to say that, but to be honest with you, I kind of have seen that a lot. I've seen that in a lot of churches. Not necessarily the PCA. It's, it's, unfortunately, it's kind of a thing that I see in a lot of chapels that I've been through. Okay? But not just in chapels. I've seen it in other churches as well. Okay? So the question we have to ask ourselves, and the reason why I put this out there, is we have to stop and we have to think about what are the things that we do that we marry our hearts to so much that we're not willing to compromise with. Okay? Now understand, I'm not talking about doctrine. Okay? I'm not talking about doctrine. Okay, this, this and this only 
is our hope. This and the one it speaks of. Okay? And the Spirit moving through God's Word to us is our only hope and is the only hope for salvation, is the only place we need to go. There needs to be no compromise whatsoever on what this says and what this means. Okay? But beyond that, okay, beyond that, are there some things that maybe we, we do and we have because we're comfortable with it? Let me give you a catchphrase. Comfort's a killer. Okay. Comfort is a killer. Remember what I said earlier. We avoid our shame and our guilt, don't we? Because it's comfortable, right? We avoid it because it's comfortable. Sometimes there are things we don't need to be ashamed of, though. We don't need to be ashamed of the fact of whether we're a clapping congregation or we're not a clapping congregation, okay? We don't need to be ashamed about whether or not we have drums or we don't have drums. We don't need to be ashamed about whether or not the building is pretty or it's a storefront, okay? We don't need to be ashamed about any of those kinds of things. Those, that's not the thing. The thing is whether or not our hearts are so married to them that they become the thing in our heart. That's the thing. And so it's important for us to remember that because if we marry our hearts to that, that, that then sets the tone for our personality as a congregation and for what we do and do not receive and whether or not we greet somebody at the door. And yet we see here that the Spirit was not a respecter of person. He reached out, and, through the, and God, through the Spirit, reached out and called to himself all kinds of different people. Maybe even people we're often somewhat uncomfortable with. So he makes us able to proclaim our joy faithfully, and he makes us then humble enough to examine ourselves and say, is this my brother? He makes me uncomfortable, but I'll worship with him anyways. That may not be my style, and God wants me to continue to be who I am, and he wants him to continue to be who he is, but we will still worship together. Right? I will not reject my brother, nor will I reject the one that God is working in, even though they make me uncomfortable. So we fellowship humbly, and through all of that then, we are living dependently upon the Spirit. If you look at verses 12 to 13, it says, All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others said, mocking, they're filled with new wine. Right? It's two responses. It's two responses to what they're hearing and what they're seeing. Two responses to the Spirit's working. The only truly good question that's asked here is, what does this mean? Now, we have to remind ourselves that the folks who are asking, what does this mean, they've not yet come to belief. They've not yet come to faith. But the question betrays and tells us then that there's a heart that's ready to hear, as opposed to the mocker who's looking for an excuse. They have ears to hear, which if you've heard that phrase before, let me foot stomp it, right? What does that mean? It means you're ready to hear, right? And there's a big emphasis on sound throughout this entire passage. Because what is it that brings the people out into the street in the first place? It wasn't the disciples and their preaching. It was the sound of the Spirit coming and filling them, like a mighty wind. It's a sound like a mighty wind. Whether or not there actually was a mighty wind, I don't know. The Scripture doesn't say, so I'm not going to hazard the guess, right? But there was a sound that was so tremendous 
that it brought people out into the streets at the same time that it was filling the disciples and drawing them out into the streets too. And so there's an emphasis on sound, and therefore there's an emphasis on hearing. Do you have ears to hear? And and Peter says it. He says, give ear. Men of Judea who dwell in Jerusalem, let it be known. Give ear to my words, right? He says, listen. He's talking about a listening that is willing to receive. A listening that is willing to say, I've got something to learn here. Something may need to change in me because of what I hear. And I wanted to draw our attention to that because in verse 21, the end of Joel says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter's describing to them their circumstance. But this passage in Joel does a lot more than just describe what's happening in that particular moment. Because Peter's saying, hey, what you're seeing now is what's happening here. And when you look at the passage he quotes from Joel, he's talking about the sons and the daughters prophesying and young men seeing dreams and old men dreaming dreams. Male servants and female servants being filled with the Spirit. And so, yes, and wonders in the heavens happening. Yes, that happened while Jesus was here. It was going to continue to happen while Acts continues to play itself out and the disciples go out and they preach the gospel. But then what does Joel do? It continues to move forward, doesn't it? Continues to move forward in time and begins to talk about the great and mighty day, about darkness falling upon the earth, moon turning to blood before the day of the Lord, the great magnificent day. Talking about the last days. And so what he's saying, what he's telling them is that in this moment, you are seeing the beginning of what I am quoting, but it will finish out there. So if you're going to hear, now's the time to hear. If you're going to hear, now is the time, because there's going to come a time where things are going to happen and all the other opportunities to become, go from mocker to questioner to believer are going to be done. There will be no more second chances. That's the message to the mockers, and that's the message to those who are asking the questions. Will you believe or will you not? Will you call upon the name of the Lord? Now, that phrase, call upon the name of the Lord, actually what it is, is it's it's a phrase that you see that gets repeated throughout the Old Testament. And what the first time you see it is actually just after the story of Cain and Abel. In the story of Cain and Abel, what happens is, of course, Cain, his sacrifice is rejected by God, and he becomes bitter and angry about it. God confronts him with it, and he doesn't listen to God. There's that hearing again. He does not listen to God, and instead he takes his, his anger out on his brother and kills his brother. And then what happens in the rest of the passage is then Moses begins to talk to us about Cain and his descendants. And about how all of his descendants just continued in that blood path, becoming more and more violent. And what he's doing is he's painting the picture of the world and life becoming more and more violent. People becoming more and more enamored with with their, their power. Okay? More and more enamored with their power. But at the end of that genealogy where he's laying out the picture, he puts out this phrase, at this time, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And what that's communicating 
is that people begin to look at their circumstances, look at the situation, to see the violence that's taking place, and to say, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. And at every other instance as you go throughout the Old Testament, when you see that phrase get raised up, those are the circumstances where it tends to be raised up. Call upon the Lord. When the, when the, when the prophets or the Psalms implore the people to call upon the Lord, that's what it's talking about. Reaching out to God. It's praying to God, asking God, Lord, do something. We're lost. We're lost. We're helpless. We have no recourse here. In other words, where do you go for rescue? Do you go to Christ? Do you look to the Spirit's work within your life and within your heart? Do you ask for the Spirit to come and enable you and again grant you the courage you need for whatever it may be that you're facing? Or do you go to the self-help aisle and grab another book out of the self-help aisle? You pull yourself up by your bootstraps, right? What do you look to? Where do you go? What do you depend upon? That's what it means, living dependently, knowing that the Spirit is going to continue to work. Because we see it here. The Spirit is moving. He will not be thwarted. The gates of hell will not prevail against the Spirit's invasion. I think a good example of this, uh, back in an even much earlier life, okay, um, back when I was making my first attempt at college, I was, I was part of what was called the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship on our college campus at Texas Tech. And when I got there, uh, I, I joined this group. It was a very small group of students. Uh, and we had a very dynamic, a wonderful, very gospel-oriented um, staff worker with us. And he really wanted to kind of build the group up. We wanted to really reach the campus. But there was like maybe like 15 of us, and that was it. I mean, that was all we had. We had enough for two small groups to be able to meet on a regular basis, and that was it. But he really challenged us to get a vision for what we were going to do and what was going to happen, what could happen on this campus. And so we, we, we took the bait, we bit big, we made a plan for having an opening event where we were going to invite people to come in and meet InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and have the opportunity to come and be part of what was happening. And we set ourselves this goal that we're going to have this, I think it was 80 people come in. We wanted to see 80 people at the event. And I can remember it still to this day. We're all running around. We're posting flowers all over the place. We're talking to friends, shaking hands, seeing people, and coming together and going, I am so terrified. This is so going to fail. Okay, Jesus, you got to do something here, right? That was, that was our attitude as we were going around. Just completely like, we're doing the thing. We're doing the things we know are supposed to be successful, right? But this is like, no, there's 15 of us. What are we going to do here? How are we going to do this? How's this going to happen? And lo and behold, something very amazing and somewhat humorous happened. We had the event, and we hit our mark. We hit our mark. It was crazy. It was awesome. It was great. And what was funny about it was that we had so many people there. They're all wandering around talking to each other, getting to know each other, having a good time, and enjoying themselves with each other. And they'd all ask each other the question, you know, hey, you know, they assumed that like this mass of audience, that there was a certain percentage of them that were already regular attenders. 
regular participants in the group, right? They didn't realize that the five or six people they were talking to who all seemed to be new weren't the only ones that were new. I mean, God answered the prayer. And as a result, we grew. We grew. And there was a lot of believers who came in and were fed and were cared for and taken care of as a result of that. And the Holy Spirit was moving. And there were people who came to faith because of their continued involvement with the campus ministry. And it was a wonderful thing, and it was beautiful. So the question I have for you, are you putting yourself in the way of God's grace? Are you believing that he has the ability to meet you in your need wherever you are? Are you risking for him, believing he can do big things? Now, that doesn't mean, okay, now that's a corporate question for all of you as a congregation. Are we, who are we reaching and are we dreaming big enough? Do we believe we have a God who can do that dream and make that happen? But it's a personal question too. In many respects, sometimes it's a personal question even just for our own spiritual growth. Because if you've been in faith for a while, you know what are some of the things that you need to be doing on a regular basis, and yet maybe a little bit undisciplined about it, right? Are you believing that God will take that and actually do something through it? That he will change you and make you new. He will continue to take you and move you from one form of glory to another, as Paul describes it. Growing out of who you once were into greater glory, into more Christ-likeness. Because that's what the Spirit is doing in each of us individually. Are you willing to then believe that God's grace is sufficient? That it could cover whatever it is that you're facing, whatever it is that you're looking at. Because in the end, our life as a believer, our life as a community of faith, and the life of all those who are yet to come to it, is wholly so focused around our king on his throne. It is focused around the one who has incarnated, lived, died, risen again, and has ascended, and is going to come back again. And I love that image. I love that image of him coming back again. I love what he's done. It's just so beautiful because what happens when he came first? When he did his triumphal entry into Jerusalem before the crucifixion, he came in on a donkey, right? Why? Because he wanted to show his humility because he knew what he was after was first to win the spiritual battle. When the king comes into a city in their day and age, and they come in with that kind of a triumphant entry, it's the entry of a king that has just won a battle and just won a war. Okay. So when Jesus comes in on a donkey, he's turning the whole thing on his head. But he's also telling everybody, hey, look, the battle I'm winning is the spiritual battle. I'm going to go to war, and I'm going to win this war. And he did. He put death to death. He put shame in the grave. He took care of every guilt and is seated on the throne. 
He reigns. He is your king. He is your king. He's the king over this congregation. The United States of America will not continue to exist. Okay? It will not. Neither will China, neither will any other country. Okay? You are not a Republican, a Democrat, or anything else. You are a divine monarchist. That is your political affiliation. Okay? You are a divine monarchist. And he cannot fail to win. And when he comes, he will not come on a donkey. Then he will come on the horse of war that his disciples were looking for. His disciples are like, oh, come on, let's do this now. Oh, we're going to kick out Rome. And he's like, not the plan. <laughs> not the plan. One day. Oh, by the way, where's Rome right now? As an empire. Something to think about. At its core, Pentecost, like the Incarnation, is about God coming to us. I mean, isn't that just amazing? It's like I don't have to earn anything. I don't have to woo him. He comes to me. He comes looking for me. Why? I have no idea, but he does. He comes. He comes because he knows I can't come to him. I don't have the capacity. I can't be good enough. You can't be good enough. You can't be religious enough. You can't be faithful enough. It's just, it's not there. It's not within us. But it is with him. And so what does he do? He comes to us. And so his spirit has now come and it is here with us. And it lives with us even in all the sin that we continue to do as believers. That we continue to fight with. And he continues to speak to us. Yes, but look to, my, look to your king. Yes, but look to your king. Yes, but look to your king. He wants us with him, surrounding him, worshiping him. That's why all this takes place in Jerusalem. Because God picked it. Could have picked someplace else. But he picked that. And that's why so much of the Old Testament paints the picture of a people surrounding God's throne in the middle. The Holy of Holies in the middle. An outer court for the Levites. Not a court for the Gentiles and the whole world outside of that. But all of it focused on the middle. And that's the picture that gets painted in Revelations. Of a world, every nation, tongue, and tribe surrounding the, the throne and praising God. Praising God because he took mockers and he turned them into believers. Because he took seekers and questioners and he answered their questions. And he loved them and forgave them and made them his children and brought them into his presence. Believers, know and understand something that what you do here every Sunday is your foretaste. It's your practice session. 
It's your choir rehearsal for what's going to happen for eternity. Know that. Remember that. As you go through the week, do not run from your shame. Do not run from your guilt. But instead, take it. Give it to Christ. Give it to him and let his joy through the Spirit, what he has told you in his word, remind you of who it is that you love and what it is you have to look forward to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I give you praise and I give you thanks for the many blessings that you have given us, that we are not left to ourselves or that you have sought us. You have called us to yourself so that we might call upon you. So I pray, Lord, that we might take our worship and that it might infuse everything we do and every word that we say, not because we want to look holy, but because we love you and we are thrilled by what you have done. In your name I pray, amen.